So how about it, folks? I'll kick the culture podcast right here. I'm Jason Martin. As always, your host, the executive producer of the Outkick the Coverage radio program, also a writer at Outkick.com about pop culture. And as of last Friday, at least for one day, politics, because Politico pissed me off. And of course, if you heard the podcast last week, you heard me kind of talk about it. And that was before I chose to write. And honestly, I, it was suggested that I write. I didn't know that things were going to go the way that they did go in terms of, you know, I read the piece from Ben Strauss. I read his article, and when I got to the point about two women of color and how that was framed, it bothered me. And there were a number of people I talked to that didn't even notice it at the time until I pointed it out. It stuck out to me, and usually, you know, I didn't just look for my quotes. I was reading the article top to bottom, but that thing stood out, and you know, after the show, Clay asked me what I thought might be pulled from that and make more attention. <clears throat> and he mentioned a couple of things that he thought might stick out. And I said, I'm afraid it's going to be this race thing that was attached to me unfairly. And Clay hadn't even thought about it at that point either. But a few hours later, he sent me a message. He said, you know what? You should write. I think you were treated unfairly. And so I did. And, you know, just sat down for about 90 minutes in silence and knocked it out. And, you know, the response, folks, blew me away. It's still blowing me away. I mean, the piece has actually still got a little bit of traction behind it. As of Sunday, it had been seen over 50,000 times. The amount of correspondence that I received via email, via DM, via just tweet replies and retweets and dwarfs anything I've ever done before. And... The number that I gave you, that 50K number, is a number that is rare pretty much anywhere on the net. I mean, you know, Clay has written some pieces certainly that are seen more than that. Some of his bigger stuff on ESPN, for example, over the last few months uh, certainly has been higher than that. And there are obviously pieces that are seen more times than mine were. But I would be surprised if a large quantity more people read my reply to the Politico piece than actually read the Politico piece. And for that, I thank you. And what I was doing was not trying to bury Ben Strauss. It was simply to explain how things end up where they end up. It was telling a full behind-the-scenes story, as honestly as I could tell, about how this piece ended up being done and how it was framed, how the questions were asked, and honestly, how it was unfairly biased and done by someone that already knew what they wanted to write before they walked in the door. And I did start thinking about this, and I talked to a couple of my friends in the media this week and had dinner with one of them, and the question was asked, why exactly was this piece done in the first place? Why, Why did this happen at all? And it's honestly has to be just because Ben Strauss is not a fan of Clay Travis and he wanted to go after him. Ben Strauss, who I did not know a whole lot about before I met him. And again, I told you, he was an affable guy. And he could be a really good guy. He might just have a bit of a problem with Clay. And it made sense to try and portray his executive producer as some racist bumpkin. And he found out real quick, when I fired out 3,500 words, that I'm pretty educated, pretty smart, and a pretty good writer. So, good on him for that. But, in general... I didn't get like a negative vibe from him as a person, but I knew what he was doing. I knew the slant that was being done, but I didn't know why Politico or Politico magazine wanted to do a feature on Clay. The only thing that made sense to me was, well, he's thinking about the Senate run, so it makes more sense. But the Senate situation, if I recall correctly, wasn't even discussed in the article at any point. So it made even less sense. Plus, the Daily Beast did a hit piece on Clay a couple of months ago. This was basically the same thing, but a little bit watered down. I don't know why this was a necessary assignment to do at all. And I saw Ben Strauss had worked for ESPN in the past, and he won some awards or won an award or two. And I hadn't read those articles, certainly, because, again, it wasn't a name that stood out to me. But I still don't really understand why he wasted his time doing this piece. It seems very out of character for Politico if they weren't going to go with the Senate angle, unless they're just trying to go ahead and smear clay now because they because ben or whoever at politico doesn't want him to run i you know i have no idea it seemed to me to be a failure of an exercise yet here we are and it's outkick to culture time so i didn't want to sit here and talk too much but i did want to thank all of those that did right i tried to say something to everybody 
that wrote me, even if it was just a, th- a quick thank you or thank you for taking the time or you've said very kind things and I appreciate it and all this kind of stuff. You know, there are a lot of folks that said they didn't know who I was. They now do. Uh, I'm indispensable to the organization and all of these kinds of things and all that's really pleasant. And I got some stuff from some people in the media that certainly are well above my pay grade uh, that wanted to reach out and say very kind things and say they were behind me and uh, say they'd be paying attention to my career from here on out. And I think that there's something instructive about that that'll lead us into discussion. I told you last week we're going to talk a lot about comedies on this show, and we are. And the one thing I'm going to tell you right off the top, before we then get into This Is Us, which is not a comedy, as we'll discuss this week's episode quickly before we get into this sitcom discussion or this comedy of 2017 discussion, is what I'm not going to do is as we as I list these shows that I'm watching right now, these comedies that I'm watching, and we've already talked about Veep and Silicon Valley, so I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fall returning stuff. In general, the network stuff, but also maybe a little bit on better things uh, and a couple of other things. But I'm not going to say this cast is great because assume that in all the cases of the shows that we're going to talk about, the casts are good. I might mention a performance here and there, but I don't want to just go down the same line. I'm going to explain these shows and try to tell you why I think they're valuable. I'm not really going to rank them, or maybe I'll end up ranking them, who knows. But I just want to give some of these shows a little bit of love, but I want to do it in a way where it's not the same comment on each show, because what's the point of that? You're listening to this to get some kind of insight. You know the casts are good, because why the hell would I be talking about it otherwise? But like I said, let's talk about This Is Us first. Second episode of the season this week, a manny, splendored thing. As Kevin went back to do a return episode of the manny, ended up having to do what was a fairly humiliating final scene in a diaper while he was searching for the baby, didn't want to do it, knew that the director was kind of trying to stick it to him and embarrass him because of the way he left and because the director happened to walk on stage while he and Sophie were kind of mocking the rant that he had done when he walked off the show, which was part of the pilot episode of the series last year. But the Politico and This Is Us situations mimic each other because something that was a perceived negative quickly became a positive when in all cases, or in most cases on the show and certainly with the Politico piece, I stopped worrying about other people's expectations and simply told them my story. One of the things I wrote in my review this week about This Is Us is that you always want to be the author of your own story. You don't want to be a character in someone else's. You're obviously going to be a character in your best friend's stories or your wife's stories or your husband's stories or your mom and dad's stories. I don't mean it that way. I mean don't let somebody else dictate how you live your life and don't let the fear of how other people might see you in terms of your imperfections and your inadequacies and let that keep you from living the life that you should live. Because in most cases, as long as you're living for the right things, in my case, first and foremost, that's Jesus Christ. It may not be for you. Whatever it is that centers you and forms your foundation, as long as you're living for that thing, other people's expectations are largely irrelevant. We are very superficial in this world. There was a time when, you know, early on, was I losing the weight? Was I trying to get into the shape that I'm still working to get into now? And I've basically hit the 100-pound line now of of weight loss since February of this year. Still with about 60 or 70 more that I really want to knock off to look the way that I want to look. Those first 20 pounds, those were for somebody else. Those pounds were because I wanted to attract the female that matches up to the standards that I've set. That is a losing proposition 100 times out of 100. It's also something that can lead to real identity issues if that woman doesn't walk into your life. Because then it's like, well, am I ever going to be good enough? And then you start to actually think about it and you're like, no. All right, you either just give up or you start to do it for yourself. Or you start to understand that it's part of larger changes within your life. That that could be a benefit of it down the road, but it can't at all be who you are. And when you look at this as us, you're seeing characters that last week were extremely inadequate in terms of the way they saw themselves internally. And this week they took those inadequacies, but they changed it to some extent and they looked at it 
from how they assume everyone else sees their problems, their flaws, their blemishes, their mistakes, their bruises. And that's a horrible way to live. You don't want to be oblivious to what's not perfect about you. But you also need to understand that there's not a soul in this world that does not fear their own imperfections. There's not a soul in this world that is not going through something. If there were an example of it, a prime example to explain this correctly, Chris Cornell committed suicide. Many wealthy people with beautiful wives, beautiful husbands, beautiful children, perfect jobs seemingly, commit suicide, do stupid things, fall into addiction, deal with vices some of us might deem completely unthinkable. We all have our shame pile. I used to talk about a shame pile in reference to something else. I used to host a podcast called Certifiable Total Recall with one of my closest friends in the world, a stand-up comic named Andrew Van, who's actually right now in New York at Comic-Con. And Andrew, very talented improv comic, very talented stand-up in South Carolina. He's now doing some traveling. He's done some stuff in Charlotte, and you're probably going to be seeing his name popping up somewhere near you in the near future. You're also going to be seeing his name on this podcast more as I'm going to bring him on here uh, in a couple of weeks, hopefully, and talk some comedy and and talk about SNL and some of those things. I said we were going to do it this week. I forgot he was out of town, but we are going to do it. But we reference Shame Pile in terms of things within pop culture that we should have seen, should have read, should have listened to, but had not. And I had some ridiculous ones on my list. Even as of five or six years ago, I had not actually seen Return of the Jedi start to finish. Some people find that unthinkable. Others couldn't possibly care less because entertainment is subjective. But there are movies and franchises. Look, Blade Runner 2049, which comes out today, and my review came out yesterday at Outkick.com. I had not seen the full Blade Runner film until the day that I screened 2049, about two hours after I finished the original. A lot of people find that unthinkable. The shame pile used to be for things that really you should have seen, especially if you're somebody that really cares about pop culture. But for whatever reason you hadn't, Harry Potter, the books, were on my shame pile for a while. And then finally, back in 2009, I read them all in about eight days combined. And they are my favorite series ever. So that was the shame pile. But if you really look at it from a mature standpoint, the shame pile is that stuff in your life that you don't want to talk about that only the very closest people in your life know about and maybe that you're even reticent to voice in prayer if that's something that you do. Everybody has that stuff. It's just different. Some people can navigate it better than others, but everybody deals with it. Everybody has those nights. And some are also better at hiding it. And some are not. Like Kate Pearson, who after last week I said I had so much hope for in terms of not being nothing or not being just stories about her weight. This was all about her weight, about inadequacy because her mother's beautiful and has a beautiful voice. And she just always thought that her mother thought she was completely untalented or needed to be fixed if she was going to ascend to the heights thought that her mother wanted to try and live vicariously through her but unfortunately she was just a little fat girl all of this kind of stuff i don't know how unlikable a character can be on tv but this one was definitely up there luckily toby was around and even though he's got his moments on the bad side of things as well he had some great stuff in this episode especially when rebecca tried to talk to him and tried to not necessarily get him on her side, but just try to get into the mix or pull him into the fight. And he said, I'm Team Kate forever. I just need you to know that. And as soon as that happened and I wrote this, I said, well, Rebecca just became Toby's biggest fan for life because all she's ever cared about, except in the just very fleeting moments, is her family. 
and this love that she has for her children and the love that they have for their deceased father. And when Toby did that, he showed loyalty that cannot be bought, that cannot be taught, that comes from integrity. So it worked in his favor. But this external inadequacy, this external expectation causing you to be reticent about what you should be doing and who you are. Kevin, for years, I would assume, although we only saw a year of this, or a couple of months, I guess, I'm not sure how long this, how long the season actually took in terms of actual time, the first season. Was he tired of the Manny, or was he tired of the feeling that no one took him seriously in Hollywood because he was the Manny? Both are problematic. Although, look, he went and did a nice play, and he's done the Ron Howard thing. He's shown that he does have talent, but he dealt with the fact that at first he didn't think he was good enough, and then he started to believe no one else thought he was good enough, even though he did think he was good enough. So when he goes back and does the Manny, he doesn't want to do this embarrassing scene because it's going to try and really push back against all of what he's been trying to accomplish after leaving the show. And just as Kate had Toby, and just as Rebecca, honestly, had Toby, Kevin had Sophie to say, Clooney the hell out of it. And so he did. He gritted his teeth. He got gigantic laughs from the audience. He did it. And then he went back to his room there, his dressing room. And you could still see on his face he wasn't happy about this at all. But he had done it. And he had succeeded. And it was funny, and it worked for that audience and for that show, and it didn't harm him at all. And I thought to myself, as the Clooney discussion was surrounding ER, that the more apt comparison would have been the facts of life, because that's where George Clooney really started, on a comedy. Yes, he went and did years and years of ER, but it was the facts of life first, and he didn't have the starring role on that show. Far from it. Who you were is not indicative of who you're always going to be. Same thing with Kate and her weight. She might always be overweight, but she's not always going to have a tough life around everybody else because of her weight. If she's likable and she has a personality and she's caring and compassionate and successful, then the weight isn't going to matter all that much. Not to anyone that's interested in anything more than just what's on the surface. For Kevin to go back and do the Manny and for that to be on his resume does not matter at all if he goes on to do a bunch of great movies. Randall's inadequacies as well and the way he always thought that everyone expected him to be perfect and he believed that he needed to be perfect. Never thought that he was because again, no one is. Made him think our kids are better than we are. Our two daughters actually were in fact so good that we had to lie to other parents and pretend to be exhausted just to make it look like we were normal like they were. How ridiculous is that? How crippling? How unfortunate it is that you feel like you can't be honest just so you can fit in. If it takes a lie, if it takes a fiction, if it takes a construct to fit in, maybe fitting in isn't the rage after all. Being unique does make us different. But if you look at This Is Us this week and you look at these characters... All of them were dealing with some kind of perceived expectation that caused them to make mistakes, make bad judgments, or assume the worst when they should assume the best. The final example was Jack, when he finally sat down with Kate first and told her, I've got a drinking problem and I needed to tell you about it because I need you guys right now. And he starts to cry and he says, I never wanted to disappoint you. We remember what a great father Jack Pearson has been on this show from the very beginning. But we also remember, and we've seen that he's had drinking issues in the past. 
we also remember he's not a perfect man because we're not perfect. Our families aren't perfect. Our parents, they weren't perfect. Mine were pretty close, are pretty close. And even Rebecca said he's pretty close to perfect. But Jack's going through something hard, and he did not want to disappoint his daughter. He did not want to upset her. He didn't want to upset Randall or Kevin either. And what happened? Kate took his head in her hands, her being a child at this point, stopped him from talking, and embraced him as hard as she could, the same way he would have done when he needed Randall to breathe or needed one of the kids just to, just to calm and relax just a little bit and realize everything's okay. He, she comforted him. We are so worried that we're going to take the point of the spear through our chest that we're unwilling to believe that in many cases what we're actually going to get in the chest is another matching chest during an embrace. We should hope for the hug. We should also assume that that can happen And we should just be honest in our lives. You talk about your inadequacies with your wife the way Randall and Beth have. But you don't let them dictate what you feel you can and cannot accomplish. So this was another good episode I thought of This Is Us this week. And I had somebody write me. I am going to mention this. I had somebody tweet me and say, you're not married and you're watching this show? Yes, I am. Imagine that, a television critic watching one of the biggest network hits of the century. The show that almost single-handedly has tried to save NBC. A show that millions of people watch every week and are interested in talking about. Imagine that I would watch a show like that, even though we're not seeing blood and guts or prurient sexual context and content over and over and over again believe me i watch plenty of that i review the deuce you read my reviews about the deuce mr robot's back next week that's a really dark show i'll be reviewing it weekly as well most of what i review is very dark very moody this is us to me As imperfect as it is and as frustrating as it is and sometimes as cheesy as it is, is a good thing. And because it rates the way it does and has the audience that it does, it makes complete sense for me to be writing about it, even though I'm not married. So thanks for that tweet and wasting your time. I know that wasn't necessarily pleasant, but it really bothered me and it sounded just insanely stupid. So I felt like it was time to address it. All right, now let's get to some fun stuff. There are a lot of good comedies on television these days. A lot of them on ABC, a couple of them on Fox, a couple of them on NBC. Really not much on CBS at this point. And then Cable has its share, of course. But all of these shows do things a little bit differently. I'm going to exclude Modern Family because you've seen Modern Family by this point, I'm sure. You know what that show is. It's way past its prime. You're still going to laugh a couple of times at it. You still probably like some of the characters, but, you know, you've been there and done that. So I'm going to focus on some of the other shows. And again, like I said off the top, I'm not going to tell you about how great all these casts are. Because just assume that that's the case. For a comedy to be good, it has to have good writing and a good ensemble. That dates back to the very beginning. There's no honeymooners without the talent of Jackie Gleason. There's no cheers without Danson and Long and Perlman and Went and Ratzenberger and Harrelson. And of course, Coach that was there before Woody. All of those shows. Cosby, same way. I'm not going to talk about Bill Cosby any further than that, but his show was brilliant. I think it went on too long, but most comedies do. How I Met Your Mother's writing really fell off a cliff late, but the cast kept it together. Radner and Siegel and Hannigan, all of them. 
So again, assume that these shows all have great casts. And maybe I'll still talk about a few people here and there, but I want to talk about why these shows work. And I'm going to start with Speechless, which I believe is ABC's, it may be ABC's best at this point. It's between that and Fresh Off the Boat for me, and Blackish is right there as well. But in particular, Speechless is working because it is sort of unique, dealing with somebody with cerebral palsy, a child with cerebral palsy in a family with two other kids and two very different kind of parents. Minnie Driver has kind of done a role like this before where she's played in a show with a different kind of challenge in that way, and she does it well. And John Ross Bowie, who you haven't seen do a whole lot except play Kripke on The Big Bang Theory and just kind of pop up here and there in movies and and other shows, seems perfectly suited for this role. But the show works because it does not spend all of its time preaching about what needs to be done for special needs children. Because that's it should be implied and it should be understood very early and very easily. We all know and all, I think, empathize and want to help in these situations. We don't necessarily need a 30-minute infomercial every week with a couple of jokes interspersed to make it work. I think that that would backfire. So instead of doing that, they at least half the time, if not more than half the time, although he's challenged in that way, they let him be as independent as they can. They let him do as much as he possibly can. And then they use Cedric Yarbrough as his attendant, and Cedric is just tremendous. I've loved him all the way back since Reno 911. The guy is just naturally funny, has great charisma, and really just kind of jumps off the screen. And the kids, all three of the kids, are very entertaining. There's one, obviously, there's the cerebral palsy child. There's his brother, who's a neurotic, crazy nerd that just desperately wants to be cool and is in love with Emma Watson. And then there's the daughter who's an athlete, a runner, but stunted emotionally, sarcastic like her father, and has trouble making friends and breaks a lot of rules. And then the parents are completely insane on on all fronts, positive and negative. But they're still good parents in their own way. Speechless is such an eclectic show in the way it's put together that it's a real credit to the writers that it works as well as it does. They have done a great job with this show. It jumped off the page pretty quickly in season one, but as it is now two episodes into the second year, it has truly hit its stride. And we are seeing a situation where children are aging, and you you can see that, and they end up growing like weeds. Eddie, on fresh off the boat, all of a sudden looks like he's a basketball player after being, you know, pretty short kid, short, uh, chunky kid. Now he's a tall, chunky kid. Looks like he grew, I think Alan Seppenwall of Uprocks tweeted out, and I agree, two, two and a half feet since the end of last season, which has only been three or four months. And you'll see that on all these shows, and some it's doomsday and some it's not. Speechless, it doesn't look like it's going to be. I don't think fresh off the boat it's going to be either. But Speechless, I honestly think at this point, might be the most enjoyable comedy on network TV in terms of just a more straightforward kind of family comedy. And it does have its heavy moments, and it does certainly speak to the unique challenges of those that are disabled and those that do need extra help. But it does not waste its time making you feel sorry about that it instead makes it gives off a feeling of empowerment and i think that's important so speechless an excellent show that i highly recommend i believe all of it i don't know that this is true i know that it was true but it may have they may have actually kind of scraped it off here a little bit because they don't usually leave these abc shows in completion on hulu 
certainly the new season is on Hulu, the first two episodes, but at least until a few weeks ago, the entire first season was as well. So if you're looking for a good comedy binge, I think Speechless is your answer. All, and that's just part of the Wednesday night ABC experience. There's the Goldbergs, which is now in season five. And honestly, that's kind of incredible because the ratings have never been particularly strong for the show. The nostalgia and the kind of coolness factor of it has always been there to me. I grew up during that time a little bit younger during a lot of it. I wasn't quite Adam's age. And some of the timeline gets a little wonky. It's not really in order. You'll see films that came out in 88 that he's you know, lampooning or doing his version of or imitating. And then you'll see something like Gremlins that was four years before or the Goonies, or whatever it might be. But the show is still made and broken mainly by the themes of the episodes, at least for me. The Goonies episode still remains probably my favorite episode of the series. And anything where Barry is completely out of control, that always helps because Troy Gentile is just a great yelling, neurotic, eccentric kid. The parents are the only kind of part of the show that I don't feel has grown. We still see the same thing from the mother and the father and the grandfather. And there are times when that's a little obnoxious. I know what the mom's going to do. I know what Beverly is going to do. I know what Wendy's going to do as an actress pretty much every time. And Jeff Garland just does a lot of yelling, and sometimes he's doing it in his underwear. Now, there's always those. This is definitely a blue sky show in terms of the way each episode ends. The family always finds a finds a way. And that's really true of Speechless, too. Although it's not quite as blue sky, there's still a little bit of snark behind it. Goldberg's, a lot of times, there's not. It's, it's almost an aww kind of show by the end of every episode. Usually with some great 80s song. And it does always... You know, there are times I've cried at the end of a Goldberg's episode. I won't lie. But... You've seen a situation and a scenario now where Erica is in college, which is a problem. Same thing, Alex is, you know, Alex in college on Modern Family, and Haley was in college on Modern Family, and Luke's out of high school. And, you know, when you start to have characters that start when your show begins, they're already in ninth grade. If you make it four years, then something has to change. And it's either they drop out of school or they go to college and their storylines completely change or they become much less a factor. We'll see how that plays because. Right now, we don't know. She's in college right now, but she spent a lot of time at home as well because they want her as a part of the show. And she's good. And her character's been very good. So I don't necessarily begrudge them for that, but it's a little artificial. It's like, obviously, when I was in college at NC State, I would go home from Raleigh, and I wasn't necessarily the guy who would just bring home laundry to do, but I would come home every weekend or so, and hopefully a friend or two of mine from high school would be there. Or after I started seeing my uh, first girlfriend, first real, like, serious girlfriend in the spring semester of that year, she was still a senior in high school when I was a freshman in college, I would come home every weekend to see her. So I had a reason. So it's not completely outlandish that Erica would be coming home, even for just the laundry side of it. But eventually, we need to see what Erica's doing on her own, or we don't need to see as much of Erica unless it's time for a visit to her or the occasional holiday show. Which leaves more Barry, and it leaves more Adam, and it leaves more for the parents and the brother that will assuredly pop back up around the holiday episodes, and then more going on at the actual school itself. But the nostalgia is still strong. They might have, you know, there are still some things they have not done that are gigantic things from the 80s that they're going to save and they're going to put out either during sweeps or whatever. Like, you, you can almost tell. Like the Goonies episode, that was huge. We've still got a Back to the Future episode out there we can do. We have done a Ghostbusters episode, but it was more in the context of of a Halloween deal with trick-or-treating in the first season. We haven't really done a true Ghostbusters episode, and we certainly haven't done a Ghostbusters 2 episode, which is something else that they could potentially touch on where Adam could end up disappointed, perhaps, in that compared to the opener. Haven't really done any Indiana Jones stuff yet. There's a lot that's out there. A lot of big tentpole things that you know Adam Goldberg will be over the moon about that we will see. And they can't dole them out week after week after week. They have to split it up so you get stuff like the Columbia House episode, which I really dug from a couple of years ago. 
in general, I would say half the Goldberg's episodes are very good and half are just okay. And you'll get on a stretch sometimes where we get three or four that are really good. But in general, I'd say about half the season hits and half the season is, it's not that it's tolerable, it's better than tolerable if you like the show. I like the characters, so I like to watch them operate in the environment. But there are plenty of stories that just kind of, they're filler, but not really filler because the show itself is basically, it, it, it is a congruent story to some extent, but generally it's idea, whiteboard, idea, whiteboard, idea, erase, idea, erase, idea, erase. And then the characters kind of keep the personality traits that they grow from each episode. But it's almost case of the week stuff if you were looking at a drama. In general, it still works. Five seasons in, I think it's gone longer, actually, than I assumed it would based on its initial numbers. But I think it's kind of rotated into a spot where you know what it's going to do from a rating standpoint each week, and unless you absolutely have something out there that's better, there's no reason to cancel it. Which is good, honestly. I like this entire Wednesday lineup, except American Housewife, which I've just never watched, quite frankly. It might be fine. I, I can't watch them all, and that's one that started after some of these others, and I had already kind of fallen into my routine. The other one that slips through the cracks for most people is The Middle, which runs the night before. And The Middle, as I, you know, I had not, did not watch it as it started. I'm not up to date on it right now. I watch it in my free time. I'm catching up. I'm in season four right now. I think The Middle is fabulous. I think everybody on that show and the way that it's done, the heart with it, but also the kind of cynicism behind it, mixed with good people in terms of just human beings as a whole. It's a really good show. I think it might be the most underappreciated comedy on network TV, certainly of the ABC lineup that we've seen in a very long time, and I'm talking before this decade began. The aughts, for sure. It's really good. And I love Pat Heaton, and I always have. Going back to Everybody Loves Raymond. But she is superb on this show, as are the children. The younger actors, they've really grown, I would say. Axel was an overactor early. He's still a little bit of an overactor, but it's working. And then, of course, you've got Sue, who's just such a different kind of sad character in a lot of ways. And Brick is just kind of the... the obtuse strange kid that you need on a funny show the middle is awfully good i think the middle hits about 80 percent of the time with its episodes whereas the goldbergs hits about 55 if i had to just put it out there and really in terms of speechless i can't recall an episode i watched that i did not like i want to go back and i'm probably going to do this over the next few weeks when i'm just sitting around i want to go back and rewatch the first season now I watched it as it happened, but I want to kind of go back and binge through it because it's, you know, I don't remember the characters' names as well as some other shows, and this far in, I should. I do when I'm watching it, but even when I've been doing this podcast, I don't have Google open right now. So I'm kind of hamstrung by that, and I wish I could remember all of these characters' names. It's just because the show's still sort of fresh to me. It feels new, even though it's a second-season show that had a full run in season one. But you look at Speechless and you look at The Middle, those are two shows that you probably didn't have on your radar that I pray you're watching if you're a comedy fan. Blackish is certainly another one. Blackish, season four, I believe it is, this year. Anthony Anderson, Tracy Ellis Ross, and those kids, and obviously Fishburne and Dion Cole and that crew. Blackish has been good from the beginning. There are episodes that drive me insane because they do get a little preachy, but I guess that kind of goes with the territory. There have only been a couple that I've really kind of just rolled my eyes and said, you know, I just wanted to laugh. This isn't necessarily what I wanted to get into. But honestly, maybe for Kenya Barris and for the, for the people that were writing that show, that episode wasn't for me. So I, I can appreciate and understand that. The show's funny. It's clever. It's a little bit inventive, more so than you would have expected, I think. It was sort of... It was pretty on the level there for the first three, four episodes. And then it started to do some really intriguing things. The Prank King episode, one of my favorites. They actually were able to go to Disney World to open last season, and it didn't ruin the show. So many comedies end up taking some vacation and wreck their show. Blackish didn't. 
So it's back again. It's still getting Emmy nominations, as it should. Remember, again, I haven't been talking much about Modern Family, but I'm mentioning all of these ABC shows. And the reason why is because ABC is loaded with really good half-hour comedies. Fresh Off the Boat, like I told you, might be my favorite of all. And when they first announced it, I immediately thought to myself, is that what we're doing right now? We're just taking some kind of ethnic group or some kind of minority group or some kind of specialty group and doing a family comedy about it. And I was referring it to because Blackish had already started and here comes Fresh Off the Boat and then there came the real O'Neills afterwards. And I'm like, what exactly is happening here? Do we need this show? Is this the same show? And I was completely wrong because Fresh Off the Boat and Blackish are nowhere near each other. And Fresh Off the Boat is just an absolute joy. The kids, and there's like a five or six pack of these kids. I saw Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter, tweet out a photo of the uh, of Eddie and his crew sitting in lawn chairs and said, imagine if this were the ensemble from It, how, much, how great that movie would be. I thought the ensemble from It, as I told you on this podcast several weeks back, was great. But that crew of kids on Fresh Off the Boat is outstanding. And I'm not even talking about Eddie's little brothers, who are also tremendous. Or Honey's stepdaughter, who is great. And surprisingly enough, in a storyline I certainly did not see coming, confided in Eddie that she thinks she's a lesbian. Did not see that coming. I will admit that wholeheartedly. But it's an intriguing way to go. But these kids are great. And then you got Constance Wu, who, I mean, off the top, she was probably the standout. And Randall Park has really stepped up pretty quickly to where that family, including the completely ridiculous grandmother, sometimes the emotionless wall of a grandma, just as a whole, that show is so smart. Its jokes are well done. There's the nostalgia of the Goldbergs, the sarcasm of something like Speechless or The Middle, there's still heart behind it, and it does generally have happy endings. But these characters don't change that much. At least the parents don't, but not in nearly as obnoxious a way as the Goldberg's parents haven't changed. Fresh Off the Boat was good from the beginning and has only gotten better. And we are now entering the fourth season of that show, and man, is it great. Like, it truly is... I'm so glad it's still around because I really thought, because it was a mid-season deal, a lot of those are burn-offs for these networks, that maybe it wouldn't make it. But thank goodness it has because it's really good, folks. Like, I, I really don't even want to say more about it. Just go find it. If you haven't watched Fresh Off the Boat, you are missing out. Get on that boat. Fresh Off the Boat, Speechless, The Middle, The Goldbergs most of the time, Blackish. I mean, ABC is rolling when it comes to funny, entertaining comedies. They all feel a little similar, but not enough that you feel like you're watching the same show. And I was so happy that I was wrong about my assessment of Fresh Off the Boat. Honestly, Real O'Neill's is pretty good, too. And American Housewife, like I said, you can tweet me if that's a show that you watch. It's just one that didn't really appeal to me, and I had other things on my plate at the time. And I just named a bunch of ABC comedies for you right there just on a couple of days of the week, as a matter of fact. So you can't watch it all, so that one didn't make my cut. But I know there are a lot of people out there that enjoy that show as well. And then you go to NBC, where I've already waxed poetic about The Good Place. Please watch that show. Still on Netflix, season one is. Season two is four episodes in, and it's absolutely brilliant. That story might be better than anything we're seeing, period, right now on TV, in terms of just being inventive and willing to twist in ways that make sense but make the show that much more entertaining and then there's Superstore which when it first premiered looked like another burn off show looked like a show that wasn't going to make it first couple episodes were a little eh, it's alright it's a big box store basically a Walmart called Cloud9 with a bunch of employees that go through various hijinks and relationship troubles and all of this but again, a strong cast, which I'm not going to go into in detail because I promised I wouldn't. Great bit characters that pop up from time to time, including the fiancé 
of one of the employees. I don't even want to tell you about this because it's so good. It does get a little bit preachy on the liberal side when it comes to unions and corporations and capitalism and some of that. Could it do without that? Probably, but it's par for the course. It's not ham-handed. You know, I'd say one episode out of ten can be a little frustrating from that perspective if you don't believe what they believe. But the show's funny and it's well done. And it's got a lot of people that are talented in terms of being able to improvise. And that's the case on a lot of these shows, as a matter of fact. A lot of the shows we just discussed on ABC, people that can improvise, people with a real comedy background, people that are naturally funny. And then there's good chemistry on all of these shows as well. Ensembles can be filled with talent that either don't get along or simply don't appear to get along when they're on stage. In the case of Superstore, that's not true. Good Place, not true. All the stuff I just mentioned on ABC, certainly not true either. And then the final show that I really want to talk about now is I don't want to go too long, is Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Fox. Now, Ghosted with Craig Robinson and Adam Scott is new, and it's sort of a comedy X-Files in certain ways. Pilot's okay. I hope that it gets a little bit better because I really like those two, and I think that show could be really funny. But Brooklyn Nine-Nine is about as good as comedy gets on network TV. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is funny every week, and not just funny, but laugh-out-loud, gut-buster funny. Raymond Holt, Andre Brower's character, is one of the best. He is Ron Swanson, basically, in a police uniform, but he's a gay black man. And his when he tries to play, like this week in particular... He was undercover and he tried to play a heterosexual man that was going to jail to visit his main squeeze. And him trying to pretend as this robotic sort of semi-emotionless character that he is, trying to play this guy that just wanted to go have sex with his wife, was one of the funniest things I've ever sat and watched. I died laughing watching this. And he, as he gets out of the car, he tells the people that he's in the car with, and just to sell this a little bit better, I'm going to put on Kevin's rose-shearing hat. To be more heterosexual, he put on a gardening hat from his husband, thinking that that was the same as a baseball hat. Like, there is so much funny about Brooklyn Nine-Nine. You got Michael Schur behind The Good Place, of course, from Parks and Recreation in The Office, and now here he is at Brooklyn Nine-Nine, for the last four years. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, now in his fifth year. Another show that, off the top, I didn't think was going to be any good. It's just like, really? Just a police show? I remember Bill Hader at the comedy roast of James Franco pretending to be kind of a Hollywood executive, an old Hollywood executive in a tracksuit, saying, you know, always pushing the envelope to, to Andy Samberg about how fast it was going to be canceled and all this. And I was just like, really? Andy Samberg, a cop show? cop comedy like I mean Barney Miller was great we know this but is this going to work yeah it's going to work if Michael Scherr does it probably pay attention to it Brooklyn Nine-Nine is consistently hilarious there are rarely ever even approaching average episodes usually it is utterly just a joy and now they've got Tim Meadows who plays a cannibal who's in jail and I I assume we're not going to see too much more of him because of the way the last episode ended. Tim Meadows is a national treasure. Tim Meadows can step into any show, and we've seen him in the Goldbergs, and we've seen him in other things, obviously, since SNL and The Ladies' Man and all the things that he's known for. Tim Meadows is just rock solid. He can play that deadpan creep or that deadpan get-away-from-me character about as good as anybody on TV. And him playing this cannibal and playing it straight, dying laughing just hitting the ground almost every time this guy talks, even as untoward and almost just gross as it gets from time to time. And I'm losing my voice again because I'm doing this on Friday and my voice has kind of been sketchy over the last couple of days. That's what's called drinking water live in the middle of a podcast. So that's just a little bit on all those shows. I know we could discuss them in more detail and and all of that, but I kind of just wanted to talk for a couple of minutes rapid fire about a lot of really good comedies that are out there that could probably fill up your DVRs. I know you've got your shows, whether you're a Shonda Rhimes person on 
ABC or you like the Chicago series on NBC, if you're watching the pretty dull Menendez murders, true crime, law and order attempt that they're doing right now, certainly This Is Us is probably on a lot of them. Young Sheldon we talked a little bit about last week. There's a lot of really good stuff, and we didn't get to better things, but we will. We'll talk about it as we get a little bit further in the season. Needless to say, if you're not watching better things, put it on your DVR. That and You're the Worst on FXX, or one is FX, one is FXX. You're the Worst being that. Those two shows are cannot miss. They are fantastic shows. They're, they can be kind of dark in their way, but they have a heart their own, and You're the Worst has really evolved into something truly special over the last few years. From being good at the start to being just outstanding with gear and with cash and with Borges and with the rest of that crew. And then Pamela Adlon might be putting on the best performance in a comedy this year with what she's doing in Better Things. She was nominated last year. She may win next year. Although Julia Louis-Dreyfus in her final season for Veep, I could, that's a pretty good bet as well. So that's a lot of stuff on comedies. Quickly before we go, Blade Runner 2049. I told you and admitted it was part of my shame pile that I had not seen the original all the way through until this week, and I watched it, and honestly, I fell asleep about halfway through it. It's a different kind of sci-fi film that is very slow-moving. It's very deliberate in a few big moments stretched across an hour and 50 minutes. It's moody. It's emotional. It's a thought. It's a thinking man sci-fi film. It's a cult classic, but critics originally were mixed and didn't really like the way it was paced. And I found myself on that side of the argument. I love the Deckard character, love Harrison Ford, love Sean Young and and her work and the Tyrell and all of that and, and everything that that film and Philip K. Dick's story has led to. Without Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, the short story that Blade Runner was loosely based on, there's also no Total Recall. As Total Recall was sort of a a ripoff of both Blade Runner and Philip K. Dick, and another Philip K. Dick story as well. You're not going to get what you would get out of the Terminator franchise, for sure. And any number of other things as well. Now, there have been the iRobots and Isaac Asimov books and and Arthur C. Clarke and, and different things like that. It's not like AI wouldn't have happened, but it wouldn't have looked the same without Blade Runner. And Blade Runner, if you look at most magazines like uh, SFX or Empire or any of those wired is regarded as one of the top two or three sci-fi films of all time. It would not make that list for me just because I guess, you know, it was 1982, it's now 2017, and I've seen so many things that are similar to Blade Runner that likely borrowed from Blade Runner that I can't then go back and appreciate what Blade Runner was in its time. So you watch Blade Runner 2049, and it's similar to Mad Max in that if you have not seen the originals, you can still watch Blade Runner 2049 and enjoy it. You get some text at the beginning to kind of explain the story, not in much detail. You're certainly going to get more out of the film if you have seen and care about the original because there are a lot of secrets that are unveiled within the story that call back to the past. And I've got to be careful what I say because there were like 17 rules before this thing started that were read to us in the theater when we were screening it. And then afterwards, there were rules as well. I had to be cautious in my review not to say certain things about certain people, not to even admit that certain people existed in the film, and to do that if I was doing any kind of audio on the show, at least for a few days after it released. So I can't really say much about it except to say it's really good. It's really good, but it's really dark. There are moments where it's slow, and it's a two-hour and 43-minute movie. But it's loud. It's beautiful in its own dystopian way. The acting from Gosling and Ford and everybody in it. Again, I'm going to be careful and not mention any other names just in case I accidentally stumble over the wrong one. Is superb. The ending is great because I thought for sure we were going one place and it seems so obvious and just like, well, this is the easiest thing they could have done. And then they ended up not doing it. I was expecting this right turn and instead they took this sharp left and sent me careening into the passenger door of the stock car. And I enjoyed that trip. I walked out of it and I thought, you know, I probably need to see that a couple of more times to really appreciate it. I gave it an A-. minus. It's somewhere in that range. I wouldn't go any higher than that just because it's... Because of the subject matter and because of the director, this guy makes movies 
that are emotionally taxing and exhausting. Prisoners, I've only seen once, and it's still one of the most affecting things I've ever walked out of. I remember I was I went and saw prisoners before I went and called a basketball game. And I remember walking out of that theater and feeling like I needed to go sleep for about three days and also take several showers because of just how ugly that movie was. And a very hopeless ending. Sicario also walked out ready to put a gun to my head. Not because these weren't brilliant movies, because they were. But they were dark. He also directed Arrival. Which, not exactly the most hopeful film either. And then here is a dystopian Blade Runner sequel set 32 years after the events of the original. Well, 30 years, I guess. It's all dark. Eventually, this dude's going to make a film that I'm actually going to be able to rewatch. I've never rewatched one of his films, but I've always appreciated the first watch. It's always been emotionally just wow. And that's kind of how I felt about Blade Runner. I don't think Blade Runner 2049 is a film that I'll own. I don't think it's a film that I'm ever going to see pop up on Netflix or somewhere else and say, man, I need to watch that again. I probably should watch it again. But the first watch was really good. But it was exhausting. So A minus, look, that's the same thing I gave. I think I gave Wonder Woman an A. I think I gave Spider-Man Homecoming an A minus. Of course, I gave Dunkirk an A plus. And Dunkirk's not a film I'm going to watch a whole lot either. But Blade Runner is going to go down this sequel as one of the better sequels we've ever seen, certainly in sci-fi. It's also one of the better sci-fi films of the century. It's going to find itself in the same critical space, I think, as Mad Max. Maybe not quite as high, but right there abouts. There is talk of Oscar nominations for supporting actor for Harrison Ford. I didn't see that personally. I love Harrison Ford to death. I'm not going to be upset if he gets nominated for anything. I just It did not strike me as that. It just depends on how many other great performances we'll see before the nomination process comes to a close. He's great. Gosling's great. Everybody in the film in general was very good. It just didn't catch me that way. Now, technically, from a technical standpoint, you look at Dunkirk and you look at Blade Runner 2049, those are the two early contenders I would suggest for a lot of those kind of honors. I think Blade Runner probably will get those nods kind of in the same way that Mad Max did. I do think that those are, that's the comparison. I was not a fan of Mad Max Fury Road. I went and saw it uh, the same night I saw Pitch Perfect 2 in a dual screening. And I found it dull. I, it bored me to tears. And the plot was so flimsy. It's like, we're going to drive on this road right here and go somewhere and pick something up. And then we're going to take this same road all the way back and save these people and free these people. And there was certainly a lot of intriguing stuff. And it was visually crazy wild. And George Miller did a really good job with it. It just didn't speak to me. I was never really that much of a fan of the source material. It's, if you want to talk about a shame pile, I've never seen Beyond Thunderdome. I've seen like 10 or 15 minutes of it when I was in a room and it happened to be on. And that was around the time it actually came out in the 80s. And I had not seen the original movie either. And maybe I should. But Fury Road just didn't do it for me. I was in the vast, vast minority in that. Blade Runner did it for me. Maybe not to the level of some other critics... And certainly not to the level of the most ardent Blade Runner supporters. Again, if you have not seen the original and you go back and watch it right now, it's not that it's not going to stand up. What it is, is something that you've now seen done many times, iteratively. People that did it because of Blade Runner. Ronald D. Moore, creator of the Battlestar Galactica television series on sci-fi, said point blank it was the biggest inspiration to him. And it was. And as I'm watching Blade Runner, I'm thinking to myself of the Cylons, and of BSG, and of who is a Cylon and who is not, and are they more human than we are, and all of those kinds of things. Those same constraints and those same conceits and the narrative that Ronald D. Moore told in Battlestar Galactica, certainly remnants of things that I saw when I watched the original Blade Runner and certainly the sequel both this week. 
but I'm a much bigger fan of Battlestar Galactica than I am Blade Runner, although the end of both movies is certainly better than the ending that Moore chose for BSG. But there's a lot of properties that wouldn't exist without it. It is incredibly important. And the film itself, this sequel, you absolutely should see. And you should see it on the biggest screen you can find, the loudest place that you can find, and just envelop yourself in this because it will blow your mind. Visually, audio, all of that. Zimmer's score and even some of the soundtrack, the licensed music that they use for effect. This film hits you from the very beginning. Once that text is off the screen, it goes. Now, it's always intense, but it's not always action-packed. There's nudity there. There's some blood and gore, just like there was in the original. That's why I say if your kid's under 10, I would wait and maybe show it to him in a couple of years. It's something he's probably going to want to see, but it's something that's going to scare your child, whether it's a boy or a girl, because they're not going to really understand the story, so it's just going to be loud and it's going to be off-kilter and strange to them. And if they don't understand it, they're going to be bored at times as well. Because there's a lot going on, but it's a lot going on that you have to understand and think about and pay attention to. And the attention spans and just the intellectual processes of younger kids, it's just not really suited for them. So I would say no if my kid was under 10 to watch it now that I've seen it. If you're over 10, all right, it's fine. As long as you're okay with the content I just mentioned. But it's definitely more of an adult film, as are all of Denise's films. R-rated, certainly nudity there, and adult themes. But Blade Runner is awfully good, so that's something you should check out this week. So we did a lot of comedy this week. We talked Blade Runner. We talked This Is Us. Talked a little bit about Politico as well. There were a couple other things that I kind of had thought about getting into. One other quick note, Rick and Morty. This came out on the AV Club yesterday. Uh, numbers have released. Rick and Morty's third season just came to a close. Probably the last episode we'll see for a year and a half. And honestly, the season finale, probably one of the weakest episodes of the entire run, unfortunately. Especially coming off the second season finale, which was just spectacularly good. Season three as a whole was great, but the finale was not particularly strong. But it is now the most watched comedy on television. Rick and Morty. Cartoon Network Adult Swim based on the numbers in the key demographic of the 18 to 34. More people are watching Rick and Morty than are watching anything currently on TV that's comedy. Based on, and they they found a way to make these stats work for them. But the big thing is, a whole lot of people are watching this animated show. And it's as dark as they come. And there's a lot of speculation you will find of people that have raged against Rick and Morty because some of the fans they consider to be masochistic anti-feminist and people that are into Rick Sanchez and believe in him the way Trump supporters believe in Donald Trump. I think all that's absurd. And I haven't, I don't know a single person that watches Rick and Morty that feels that way. I certainly look, I think Rick is hilarious, but obviously Rick's terrible human being. But at the same time, Rick and Morty is just such a once in a lifetime kind of experience in terms of something you're just never going to see again. You're never going to, you've never seen it before. You're never going to see it again. Wildly inventive show. And Dan Harmon, who was already very inventive with what he did with community, which one of the most beloved critical comedies, I would say of the century. Certainly it's on my list. It made my top 10. I wrote about it. Dan Harmon actually appreciated that piece and sent me something and told me so he and Justin Roiland and what they've done with brick and Morty, where that show started, and where it is now is incredible. That is, you you can't walk into a hot topic without looking at Rick Sanchez and Morty right in your face. You can't walk into Spencer's. You can't walk into FYE. You can't walk into anywhere without Rick and Morty being front and center if it's some kind of a trendy or even just pop culture-y kind of place. When you go to Turner, when you go to Phillips, and you go to Atlanta, you go into CNN Center, it's a giant Rick Sanchez sitting on a bench that you can sit next to and take photos with. And then there's a store fulfilled with Rick and Morty merchandise right behind it. show is enormous. I never thought it was going to get this big. Absolutely huge. And one other final note about another animated show, one that I'm catching up on now, still in the first season, actually, so i got a long way to go. Bob's Burgers, getting a movie in 2020 on the big screen. That's a show that right off the top, nobody seemed to like critically. And now it is basically The Simpsons. Bob's Burgers has replaced Family Guy completely. And anything else that Seth MacFarlane's doing. 
it's you know there's the Simpsons still has its fans, but I would argue now Bob's Burgers is probably the most liked comedy that Fox is still running as part of that animation domination stuff that they've done since Futurama went off. So it's something I'm catching up on, and I'll talk more about it as I learn more about it, but I'm enjoying what I've seen thus far, and it does seem to be improving as it goes along. First few episodes, eh, a little bit of a slog, but you know, a lot of series can be guilty of the same kind of thing. But impressive that Bob's Burgers is getting an actual major release motion picture, and congratulations to those guys. That's really, really impressive. Congratulations to Rick and Morty as well. So that's a lot of pop culture for you. And my voice is shot, so I'm going to drink some more water, and then I'm going to leave this studio, and I'm going to hope you're going to enjoy this over your weekend. Hope your football teams and your baseball teams win. Hope your hockey teams win. Hope your basketball teams are in the process of winning as the NBA regular season is set to start here at the end of the month. Just a lot, lot, lot going on. I don't even know what we're going to talk about next week. We're definitely going to talk a lot about Mr. Robot. It comes back next week for its third season. I'm going to lay out why season one generally worked and why season two generally didn't and what season three needs to do. And we will have already seen and I will have already written on the season three opener by the time that we meet again in seven days. And we can start to see what Sam Esmail is going to do. Season two, he decided he wanted to trick his audience instead of telling a cogent story. Season one, he told a pretty cogent story with a few twists in it and put forth one of the best performances in recent memory on TV from Rami Malek. And Malek was still great in season two. The show was just very inconsistent, and the finale was just not very good. So we'll discuss all of that next week. We'll also get back into the deuce. We're going to do that every couple of weeks. We'll talk about two episodes at a time about that show. Also, Curb Your Enthusiasm came back. We will get into that next week and where it stands on the comedy pantheon. Not of now, but of the century and maybe all time. I read that The Ringer called it the best comedy of the century. Don't think I could go quite that high, but it's definitely on the list. It's definitely way up there. So we'll discuss that next week. We'll also discuss James Miller's podcast, Origins, which so far has all been Curb Your Enthusiasm. There have been like eight or nine episodes of it. James Miller is one of the authors of Live from New York, the oral history of Saturday Night Live, as well as, as well as those guys have all the fun, which is the ESPN oral history. And now he's kind of telling these oral histories with these longer, like nine episodes about Curb Your Enthusiasm, where he sits down with Weed, and he sits down with Larry David, and he sits down with Susie Essman, and he sits down with Bob Einstein, and all these people, and gets their thoughts about the show from start to finish. It's almost like it's an oral history, but instead of writing a book, he's doing it via podcast. And I think everybody should be subscribed to this thing, because it's going to be really cool to see where he goes in his next thing, because obviously he can't do Curb forever, so he's going to go to another show or another piece of pop culture, or a TV network, or whatever it is, and do the same thing. And I think it's a really cool idea for a podcast that kind of bridges the idea of having different stories, but also having multiple episodes about one. It's like serial, but it's not about crime. It's about the television business, and about series, and success, and obviously entertainment in Hollywood. And I think that's super intriguing. So I love what he's doing, and I'm very excited to see where that podcast goes. So we'll talk a little bit about that more next week. I've only listened to a couple, so I still need to kind of finish it up, and then I'll give you more of a rubric on that next week. So a lot to get to next week. Watch Speechless this week. If there's one thing I tell you, and certainly if you haven't watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine, my God, jump on that. Same thing with Fresh Off the Boat. I'll see you next week. This has been Outkick the Culture. Have a good weekend, folks.